Turn to the book of Ezra, if you would, please. So if you like titles for messages, um, the first one was really just an introduction, kind of a broad sweep of the subject of prayer. And this one could be titled Revival Praying, Revival Praying. And we're just going to look at prayers of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, this will be fairly simple and straightforward, and we just want to look at examples of how they prayed. So Ezra chapter 8, if you would. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ezra chapter 8. Oh, forgive me. We'll come right back to Ezra chapter 8, but I do want you to see something here. Go to Psalm 119, if you would. Psalm 119. I'll I'll, uh, come tell me if you've seen this before. I noticed this a little while back and it just delighted my heart. Psalm 119. And um, we're going to skip our way through here. Verse number 10. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. So just look look at the passion of the psalmist. With my whole heart I sought you. Now, verse number 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me. According to your word. So he's crying out. The psalmist is crying out for revival. Uh, Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Boy, you could easily have a series of messages on these verses. And I'm I'm just going to basically read them. Uh, Look at verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Uh, Verse number 107. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Please just pause and just notice the heart of the author. Rivers of waters run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Okay, um, 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. And then one more, 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So I just want to start our time uh, for these minutes just with that heart's cry for revival. Um, there's a group of men that, that have been um, just crying out to the Lord for, for revival. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord for revival. So uh, go ahead and turn to Ezra, if you would. Chapter 8. And we're going to look at the way people pray in revival. 
This is a time of great revival in Israel's history. Ezra chapter 8, verse number 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So point number one in my outline is that during revival, people pray humbly. Notice what he does. He, they, they proclaim a fast. So they're taking this seriously. By the way, is fasting a New Testament practice as well as an Old Testament practice? Sure it is, right? What about post-Pentecost? Sure, right? So they're taking this seriously. I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us. Boy, that's humble. Lord, anything you want from me, you've got it. I can't, I can't help myself but say, I hope and pray that this is the attitude that we come to this weekend with. And that anything the living God tells you this weekend, that you'll instantaneously turn it over to him. According to the Lord Jesus, there's a major difference between wise and foolish, right? What they have in common is they both hear the word of God. What they don't have in common is that the foolish hears the word of God and walks away unchanged. The wise hears the word of God and heeds what, what he's said. Boy, I pray that by the grace of God that he would help us to be wise. These people, they're taking it seriously. There's a problem and they're taking it seriously. Now, forgive me. I guess I, don't, I shouldn't ask for forgiveness. I just can't help but say these things. Um, how bad does it have to get before we're willing to be desperate and do things like this? How many elders have to go to prison before we proclaim a fast and call for a regional solemn assembly? I wasn't even familiar with that term that long ago. I don't know if you use words like that or not. But how bad does it have to get before people are willing to come out and pray? How many people that work with youth murder their wives before we realize we're bleeding. We have cancer. We're on a cruise ship that's slowly sinking. And however you want to think of it. It was desperate. Uh, Warren Henderson, I've heard him say it three or four times. When the people of God become desperate for God, then we'll get the revival that we seek. You see that as a principle. He's actually in Topeka speaking on revival Wednesday after Wednesday. I'm missing the whole thing, but they're taping it. Praise the Lord. Um, when the people of God become desperate for God, then we'll get the revival that we seek. They're desperate. Uh, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us, our little ones. Lord, we don't want to raise our little ones according to what we always dreamed. We want to raise our little ones to be disciples for you. Radical, sold out disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the number one goal of Christian parenting. Amen? So he says, the right way for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. Is that radical? That happens in revival. We'll look at it, Lord willing, tomorrow. Acts chapter 4. That happens in revival. People don't care about temporal things. They become consumed by eternal things.
There's a massive difference between praying, my will be done, and between praying, thy will be done. Now, it's so subtle, we can so easily miss it. Um, I, my heart was right in my young 20s in the sense that I was giving myself to the local assembly wholly, even to a fault, right? Like I had to learn, okay, you're not paying enough attention to your wife and your kids. Um, I had to learn, like there was a time where I wasn't making enough money and I had to go get a job three nights a week at the YMCA because, because I, part of my responsibility as a godly man was to provide for my family. There were lots of lessons along the way, but my heart was right in the sense that I was giving myself, I was giving myself holy, but so much of my prayer was basically, Lord, I have this wonderful ministry idea. If you will just get behind it and empower it, think what the two of us could do together. And, and I didn't put it in those words, but so much of my praying was, Lord, please, Lord, please, my will be done on earth as yours is in heaven. Lord, please, week after week after week. Boy, there's a huge difference between praying, my will be done, and between this attitude, thy will be done. Now, I'm just going to make this very real. The Lord knows I'm not trying to be hard on anybody, but these are very consistent themes that come up. I was in Manitoba this summer, and a girl, she's, an, she's a young elder's wife. She came to my wife and I, and she said, um, I have a question. She said, there are two of us that were praying for a husband, for our friend, and we were praying that the Lord would bring her a husband before she turned 30. And she turned 30 a month ago. And so she's asking, how do, we, how do I think this through? That's a pretty honest, humble question, right? There's a huge difference between praying, trying to convince God to allow us the life that we want, and then, and then reading this and saying, whatever you want, that's what I want. I want the will of God for my life, the good, perfect, acceptable will of God. I want to die to myself, to my ambition, to my goals, to my thoughts of whether I'll serve on this continent or on that continent whether it's in this kind of ministry or in that kind of ministry. I just want to die to all those things. Thy will be done. Now, what about when you take the next step and now you're married and then you, you're eight years in and you can't have a baby? That's hard, isn't it? I watched my best friend go through this. On a ski trip, he sat me down with his wife and they were just beaming, right? And they said, we're pregnant. And then three days later, he came and he said, can I borrow your keys? And I said, sure. Um, he said, I have to take my wife to the hospital, and they lost the baby. It leads to all kinds of questions, right? Why? At some point, these things become incredibly real and incredibly painful. People ask, Lord, why would you give a baby to the immoral teenager? And you won't give a baby to me. I pray that this is a blessing, not a burden. I just simply want to highlight 
that there's a huge difference. It's almost like a 180 difference between in any subtle way praying my will be done and praying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in times of revival where you see the Lord really work, this is what you see as a theme. They humble themselves to seek from him the right way for us, for our little ones and for all our possessions. So they pray humbly. They pray humbly. Okay, um, verse 23. Verse 23. Ezra chapter 8, verse 23. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. He answered our prayer. Point number two in the outline, they prayed expectantly. In times of revival, they pray expectantly. Boy, it's a joy to read about revival. There's a book by Brian H. Edwards called Revival of People Saturated with God. I'm about three-quarters the way through it. Um, the the three-quarters that I've read, I would heartily recommend. And I would recommend the book just simply on the fact that I trust Mike Outwood. He's been through the book, I think he told me three times. I know it's multiple times, but I think it's three times he's been through it. And it's just tremendous to read about the ways that the Lord has worked. This is such a theme of how the Lord works in times of revival. They pray expectantly. Um, there's a, such a sense, a tangible sense of the Lord's presence in a unique way. And along with that comes, uh, for lack of a better way of knowing to say it, a spirit of prayer. And then, and then um, there's just this expectation of the Lord moving. It's such a delight and a privilege to watch the hand of God move. Um, we lost our keys a number of weeks ago, probably months ago now. And we were looking all over. That can be one of the most frustrating things in the Christian life. And um, we're looking all over the house for these keys. And finally, I said, okay. And everybody stopped. And I said, we're going to pray. And I just bowed my head and just very simply, very quickly said, Lord, would you please help us to find the keys? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. And then my daughter, who bounces through life, she doesn't walk. She just bounces everywhere. She, she literally, physically, she went bounce, bounce, bounce up onto the couch and bounced onto the couch. And when she hit the cushion, we all heard, ring, you know. And, uh, and so she picked up the cushion and there they were, right there. And it's such a theme. It's such a theme um, that the Lord, the Lord answers expectant prayer. I went to a youth conference in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, um, a number of years ago now. I rolled in on the Friday. My, my plane was actually delayed, so I missed my message on Friday night, and they shifted around the messages. And, but I got there. We had a nice time of fellowship. Then I walk out. They say, now, are you okay? And I had my host home address. I had my Garmin. I had my rental car. I said, like, yeah, I'm fine. Um, and so I put my address into the Garmin, put it up on the window, and then it's sitting there saying, calculating. Now, I didn't really think about it, but it was completely overcast. Like, not, you couldn't see through the clouds at all. So it's just sitting there saying, calc, calc, or not, is it calculating? No, searching for satellites. Searching for satellites. So it's just sitting there, right? And finally, um, I say to the Lord, um, Lord, would you please make the Garmin work? And as soon as I said work, it said to me, calculating, and it went zero to 100, and, and I said, praise the Lord, and, we, and I pulled out. Now, next day, I went, um, spoke all day long. We had a tremendous day. Walked out, last one out of the chapel. Same thing, I'm good to go. I hit, go to my host home, and it just sits there, searching for satellites. 
Now this time I sat there for a long time, right, smiling at the Garmin. And then finally, after probably a minute, no, two, three minutes, something like that, but a long time just sitting there staring at it, I said, Lord, and as soon as I said Lord, it said calculating, just like that, and went zero to 100, and I drove home. I came on Sunday, uh, we had a great time, finished the conference, walked out to the car, and I was actually smiling on the way to the car. I get in, and I hit, it was a different address this time, I hit it, and I hit go, and it said searching for satellites. And I sat at least twice as long as the day before um, sitting there. And then finally I said, Lord, and it said calculating just like that, zero to 100. And then on my mind, uh, so strongly impressed, dependence on the living God, dependence on the living God, dependence on the living God. If we're going to see a fraction of what we're asking the Lord for, we have to be a dependent people. The Lord answers prayers. He promises us that he answers prayer. Now, we're also, to, to attempt to be balanced here, Sunday morning in the will of our great God, we're going to talk about biblical reasons, biblically stated reasons, why the Lord doesn't answer prayer. The Lord deals with that subject too. Um, but it is his will to answer our prayers, and he does answer prayers. Um, so we can pray uh, expectantly, praying in the will of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Okay, let's go to um, chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. In verse number 1. Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. What would you call that? Worldliness, right? So they're mixed with the world. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. I'm almost to this point. I read this. I'm almost here. It's really, it's miserable, honestly. We have young people coming out of our ears in the Midwest. It's a joy and a blessing. And you go to a youth conference, they're huge. And there's young people everywhere. I can't even talk them into not partying. The elder sons that are alcoholics now and the girls that are pregnant now. And, and um, we've had four young people in the last six months declare themselves publicly homosexual. You just go on and on and on. We're so, we're so mixed with the world and we're, we're bleeding so badly because of it. And you can't, you can't even talk the people of God into seeing it the way that he sees it. Point number three in my outline is unselfishly, unselfishly. This is the problem. How does, how does, what's the response to the problem? Look at verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous 
For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. They're not just praying about their own needs. They're bearing one another's burdens in prayer. And they're confessing the sins of the people of God. I'm not wise enough or smart enough or powerful enough or authoritative enough to know when this is or when it would even be appropriate. But eventually, the leaders of the people of God are going to have to stand before the Lord and confess the sins of the people of God. You see, this is an overwhelming theme of revival that that people have a consciousness of sin that they did not have before. They begin to see how the Lord sees. When's the last time you read Zechariah and saw the high priest standing there in his filthy garments? Do you remember that? You know what that word filthy means? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's a different Hebrew word. In Zechariah, he's standing there in his filthy garments. It means excrement covered. And I know the positional truths. And I rejoice, I rejoice in the legal declarations that our God is willing to make on the meritorious work of Jesus Christ. But there's a practical reality that is constantly exhorted in the Scriptures. Boy, I read across that this week. A filthy priest standing in the presence of God being accused by Satan. And I know we've been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I rejoice in this. I'm thinking purely about our practical reality, not our positional standing. What is one massive problem in the bride of Christ in North America? We are riddled with filthy priests. Mixed with the world. Sin that's not even named amongst the Gentiles is named amongst us. And men of God in these stories, they're so grieved by it. They tear their garments. They put dust, dirt on their heads. And they sit down before the Lord and they confess the sins of the people of God. Here we are before you in our guilt. I'm part of a bride of Christ in North America that's cheating on Jesus Christ. I don't see how we can possibly be okay with that. Boy, I pray that that drives us to be a people of prayer. my wife loved me the way that we are loving him as a bride oh it'd be a miserable marriage you feel bad for the Lord you know the torturous part of it is is little feeble me like a little boy wandering around in my dad's tool shop I have no ability to change it So it drives me to my knees to talk to a God of omnipotence. He can change it. I don't want to live and die and be part of a generation that was adulterous and idolatrous and complacent and lukewarm. I don't want that. I long long to see Him move amongst His people. And I'm so utterly helpless 
to do that which is set before us to do. That it just drives me to these types of things. Here we are before you in our guilt. They're praying un, unselfishly. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 3. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fast in and pray in before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Point number four is consistently. Pray in, fast in, day and night. What would drive him to be this kind of a person of prayer? God wasn't getting the glory that he was supposed to from his city, Jerusalem. God isn't getting the glory that He's supposed to from us. The work is floundering here. I, I know you, I, I trust, I know, you've studied these things out. You've got the first group that came back, and then the work floundered, and you've got Haggai, and you know all the prophets, the commentaries on the history, and all the rest of it. The work is floundering. It's not what it's supposed to be. I feel like the bride of Christ is, is like a fish on the shore just flopping today. Not moving forward the way that it's intended to. It's just floundering. Um, the people of God are not what, they, not what they should be. And the people of God are not where they should be. All of that is here. And his response to it was to be a man of prayer. So consistently praying. There's a group of elders, there's a group of elders in North Carolina that have been praying for revival for 10 years. That's an encouragement to me. Praise the Lord. I think when the Lord does it, that's going to be an overwhelming joy for those, for those men. I already mentioned that I, I've, to try to help my own discipline in this process, I pray with a different brother each day, Monday through Friday, um, and that's been such a massive blessing. It started with one brother Thursday mornings years ago, and then just little by little it grew. The Lord would put different people on my heart. you pray with them. A lot of times it wouldn't last all that long, six months, you know, um, so once in a while it changes. For me, it hasn't changed for a while. Um, but consistently seeking God in prayer. On August 24th of this last year, um, we called, we didn't call it a solemn assembly, but we basically called for a solemn assembly. We, we called the people of God to come together and to pray regionally in the Midwest. And um, I, I could stand here and talk for an hour about it. Um, 
at the end of the day, I asked Mike Atwood, um, were you disappointed in the number of people that were willing to come out and pray? And I thought his answer was so beautiful. He said, I was disappointed for them in the number of people that were willing to come out and pray. He said, I was not disappointed in the prayer. The Lord met us that day in a unique way. And I find that that's such a theme. Um, the Lord meets you at these times, and there's an overwhelming joy um, in meeting with the Lord. Even if you weep before the Lord all day, there's an overwhelming joy in, in meeting with the Lord in these ways. Um, things had gotten desperate enough that Nehemiah was willing to consistently, willing to consistently pray. Uh, look at verse 11. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And then go forward to chapter 2, verse 4. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Just notice that the whole process of this great work of God was birthed in prayer. This is really just a tiny little introduction to the things we're going to talk about tomorrow. We're going to pick right up on this theme, and we'll keep going tomorrow. Um, I just want to make one more point. Nehemiah chapter 9, if you would. This will be point number 5. Maybe I'll throw out point number 6 for your notes. But point number 5 is Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1 says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and dust on their heads. Notice they're taking it seriously. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Point number five is they prayed corporately. Now, I made this point when I was here in January. I'll gladly make this point again. The scripture overwhelmingly clearly makes this point, that we're to go into our prayer closets and we're to pray to our Father in the secret place. And our Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So I'm not really making that point, although the scripture does make that point very clearly. But here, um, the leaders of the people of God call for a solemn assembly. The people of God come out. They're taking it seriously. They confess their sins. They stand before the Lord. Um, boy, it's such a joy. On August 24th, when we did that in Topeka, Kansas, there was a group in Manitoba that, that did that. There was a group in Illinois that did that. There was a group in North Carolina that did that. There was a group in Southern California that did that. It was such a massive joy to me. Massive joy. I couldn't hardly sleep the night before. And so I lay there in bed, and I, I kind of knew that... Um, uh, I kind of knew that um, not that many of our local Christians were going to come out. And, um, and I was trying to keep my eyes on the Lord rather than the Lord's people. And I lay there on my bed, and um, I was talking to the Lord about it. And then the Lord, um, I, I don't care how you say it. You can say it however you want. If you want to say he impressed on my mind and my heart, um, it's not audible, but he does say it. Um, however you want to say it, he says it. Um, the Lord said to me, I open doors that no one can shut. Trust me. And laying there on my bed, I said, I said, yes, Lord. 
And then he warned me. I shut doors that no one can open. Fear me. And trembling, I said, yes, Lord. And boy, the Lord has used that to, to keep my eyes on him. The 20-minute drive out to our chapel, I open doors that no one can shut. Scott, what you need is me. You don't need to talk 5,000 Christians into getting together for a solemn assembly. You need me. And when I come down, so to speak, when I move in this coming generation, then the people of God will gather to pray. Now, I don't pretend to know the future, and I don't pretend to know God's mind in that sense, his specific mind, or how he'll do it, or when he'll do it, or, or any of those things. Um, but boy, that was that an encouragement. What we need is him. I used to think 530 million people to be reached with the gospel. How on earth are you going to do it? And then, it seems like such a foolish thought looking back, but I thought, we're going to need a million evangelists. And then, and then a young guy from Canada came down to help us with our camp, and he spoke on the Sunday in his message. There's nothing that prevents the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love that little phrase. You don't need a million evangelists. Whitfield and Wesley turned their world upside down. Moody turned his world upside down. The Lord can use anybody he wants, anytime he wants. He can use two people. He could use one person to reach the whole continent with the gospel. What we need is him. We desperately need him. So corporately, they're praying corporately. When the people of God become desperate for God, then we will get the revival that we seek. Now, I just want to say, point number six, and I'll just say this quickly and we'll be done, is um, appropriately. Appropriately. And the reason I'm saying that is over and over again, I've stressed that the scripture stresses the public confession of sin. And really, I think it's prudent to, to talk about this a little bit. Um, what would I be encouraging when I read these portions? The public confession of sin. Because there's an aspect of this that, that a youthful zeal could lead, hold, lay hold of this unto such an unprofitable exercise. Let's just say, let's say um, I hate black t-shirts. And I've been mocking your wearing of black t-shirts to all these people over here. And then I just come out and I publicly, I'm not trying to be silly, um, and then I just publicly declare my mocking of you, right? Well, that could do great damage, right? There's a principle in Scripture that you keep sin in as limited a context as possible. When the person that goes around whispering about sin, right, from house to house, you actually do Satan's work for him when you go around whispering about sin and spreading the effects of sin. And so in what sense would they confess the, the sins of the people? Well, the obvious answer is it's the publicly known sins of the people. They're marrying pagans, right? People knew this. And so the Lord gave the sensitivity to sin, and then the leaders of the people of God stood and confessed the sins of the people that were known. There's also another, there's another aspect of confess your sins to one another, 
pray for one another and be healed, right? Like James chapter 5. Well, you look at that word sin, what does it mean? Again, I hope that this is common knowledge. It's the idea of faults, right? I have tendencies. There's nothing wrong with confessing that. Tendencies, faults. I've been standing here tonight talking about the sins of the people of God. And I gladly talk about my own tendencies and say, please pray for me. And so there's an appropriate sharing of tendencies. And then there's, of course, when sin is publicly known and it's grievous, there's an appropriate, we should be rending our garments before the Lord and saying, it can't go on this way. Lord, please do something about this. We're helpless to do this. Please bring us out of the spiritual adultery and complacency and apathy and idolatry that's so commonly all around us. So, oh, there's so much more that we could say. Um, this will lead us right into tomorrow. In the will of our great God, tomorrow we'll talk about prayers of a growing church in session number one. We'll talk about um, prayers of a barren bride in session number two. And again, that'll lead right into Sunday. So let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to look at these things. Lord, these things are not light. Um, this is our day. These are our challenges. Father, you know far greater than we do how desperate it is. Lord, very simply put, we just long for Jesus Christ to have the love from his bride that he deserves the glory from His bride that He deserves. We long for there to be a practical holiness amongst the people of God built upon the positional realities of what You've declared us to be in Christ. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would please take these dear Christians in this room and use the Word of God as only He can. Encouraging and teaching and building up and comforting perhaps rebuking, challenging, exhorting, correcting. Father, we lift up to you this assembly. I love this assembly. I've been looking forward to coming for months. It's a joy to be back. Father, I pray that you would bring about the most possible glory from this assembly that you, in your omniscience, can imagine coming from this group of Christians. Father, I pray that you would make this group of Christians as holy as yet to be glorified saints can possibly be in this life. Father, are they as holy as they can be? Are they loving Jesus Christ? Enjoying intimacy with Him? Father, I, just, I lift up to you not only the work of God across our continent, but the work of God right here. Father, please, please help them to see Fort Lauderdale and this region the way that you do. Lord, we can comfort ourselves with so many things, and we want to be comforted in that sense. But Father, oh, please save us from sitting in the same place 10 and 20 years from now that we're sitting right now. Your son said, I will build my church. Father, please help us to see the way he sees. Father, we just have such a long way to go. We want to just cry out in closing tonight. Lord, please teach us to pray.
Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the all-access backstage pass that was purchased for us. We can walk into the throne room of the heavens anytime we want. In fact, we sit there. We live there, seated in Christ at your right hand. But in that practical sense, we can, we can walk into your throne and all of heaven stands still to listen to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn a devotion to the activity of prayer and a fellowship and a delight in the relationship of prayer and a sobriety and a sincerity in the seriousness of prayer and a labor in the, in the partnership of prayer. There's so many things to learn, Father. We just commit ourselves to you. You who began a good work, we pray that you would please lead us on in this vast subject. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.